We're going to take a little bit of time to read from the Gospels the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you well know, we've been approaching the season of the Lord's arrival, the uh, season of Advent. And as a church, we've been talking about the stories in the Gospel of Luke and, uh, and in Matthew. And uh, today is the culmination of those stories and how wonderful that it turns out to be a Sunday morning also. But uh, I'd like to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to read in chapter 2, but before we read that, I'm going to pray. Lord, it's such an honor to sing songs of worship and praise to you. It is an honor to bring to you the gift of our breath turned into song. You gave us breath and we offer it back to you. Along with the strength of our hands and the might of our intellect, we bow ourselves before you, Lord, body, soul, and spirit, for you are the righteous King. In you, all our desires are met. You are indeed the desire of nations. You are the, the precious Prince of Peace, the one who brings to us that which our souls yearn for and which we seek with the days of our lives here under this sun. It is elusive until we find ourselves in you. You are our sweet shalom, the peace of God that passes understanding. Today we thank you, Prince of Peace, mighty, almighty God. And as we come to your word and read the story of your birth, may our hearts be once again enamored with this magnificent, magnificent story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first chapter of Matthew is traditionally not read at a Christmas service because it is a genealogy. And, uh, and it seems perhaps a little tedious. When you start your Bible reading plans in the first of the year, by the way, I do have... Bible reading plans for you, and I will hand them out to you next Sunday. Uh, for those of you who are interested, a little, a little extra gift from Living Hope Family Church to you. For those who'd like to make the reading of the Bible from cover to cover one of your New Year's resolutions. But uh, when we read in, the, uh, in our reading plans these lists of names, these genealogies, they, they are um, somewhat tedious. And of course, some of you have been in church long enough to know that this is no tedious genealogy whatsoever because of the people who are mentioned here. And the stories of those people can be read, at least some of them, can be read in the Old Testament in that big old portion of the Bible that happens before Matthew. We're not going to talk about them today, but I do want to mention that Matthew, who tells the story of Jesus, who is one of the disciples of Christ, and he is that, that infamous tax collector 
<laughs> the guy you all love come February and March, <laughs> April 15th. And uh, Matthew is that tax collector who betrayed his nation by being, by being a, a pawn of the Romans, collecting money for the emperor and filling his own pockets with it, taking it from his own kin. Matthew, the one who is redeemed by Jesus in the most mar marvelous and miraculous way, outcast from his society, accepted by the Son of God. His story, he tells us, not because he's fastidious and a tax collector and wanting to document every name, although that probably plays some part of it, but he tells it to us because he wants us to know Jesus is real. He's not just a fable. He's not just once upon a time there was a man in Galilee. He is a man whose lineage can be traced back in the ancient, the most ancient genealogies of all time. And Matthew tells us that for a reason, to bring Jesus a lot closer than a myth or a fable. And so the stories that he continues to tell are fascinating because they are rooted in reality, not North Pole, reindeers, and elves. Nostalgic as that may be for you, this is a story based in reality. And Matthew tells us the story of just the rawness of the birth of Christ, and it's beautiful. And Luke does a similar thing, but Matthew's genealogy is important for you, and I encourage you to read it at some point. And by the way, read it with one of those commentaries in hand so that you can see who the important people are. Well, they're all important people, but who the unexpected people are that jump out of this genealogy. Matthew also, also, uh, Matthew also tells you of the genealogy of Christ because he wants to root Jesus' arrival in the ancient prophecies, the promises that God had given, the promises that God gave to Abraham, who is the he is the father of the family through whom God would bring Messiah. We owe the Jewish nation a great debt of gratitude. For they separated themselves from the world and kept themselves and their line pure because they believed that God had given a promise that the whole world might be saved. Not all of them honored the Lord, but enough of them did. So that when the Lord came seeking to bring his redemption to the world, there was found a young teenage girl who had not given herself to anyone, but had kept herself in expectation of the promise. We owe that culture a deep debt of gratitude. <laughs> Sorry, an angel suddenly appeared in the back in the form of a child with golden wings. <laughs> it was a sudden shock. I just took my... <laughs> uh, I love you guys. That's so funny. For those of you who are online, sorry. It was an inside joke. You know, it's Judah running around in the back with his wings on. Matthew tells us the story of the birth of Christ, and he tells in chapter 1 of the angel that speaks to Joseph. And, uh, and so Matthew's gospel gives you the story of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. And uh, Joseph is a good name, actually. And uh, Yosef 
or Yusuf. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Interesting that Matthew is going to now continue to tell his story after the genealogy and telling us a little bit about Joseph and how Joseph was a righteous man who didn't want to marry the girl that was with child from somebody else other than him. Until the angel came and said, the child that she will bear is born of the Holy Spirit. God has worked a miracle. Interesting, by the way, while I'm at it, to just tell you, this is very different from the sort of the, the deity, humanity, interactions that we're told about in Greek mythology or Babylonian mythology or Roman mythology or Egyptian mythology. In all of those, they had stories of the gods uh, creating children through, through humans. But it was, always, it was always violent and it was always rapacious and it was always, it was always against the will of the human and it was it was capricious gods, unreliable, untrustworthy gods, full of sin in their own hearts that were coming from the heavens to make their way into the world and to gain whatever it was that their hearts desired. This story is so different from that. And if you were to think about it in the context into which it comes, not your 2,000 years later Western 21st century context, but into the original context when the stories were first told. This was clearly not the language of myth. This was something very different. By the way, if God exists, it is no trouble for him to create within the womb of Mary a child without the necessity for the regular process. God can do anything. And for God to bring a child through Mary to the world without the seed of Adam through Joseph makes the child that will be born both son of God and son of man or son of woman. And so Jesus gets to come through virgin birth to be the second Adam, as it were, the new the new Adam who faces the same temptation as Adam, but doesn't sin. God and man. Amazing, isn't it? I have that effect on children. <laughs> and now he goes on to tell the story about wise men from the East, who, by the way, are... This is sort of anathema to the Jewish nation. Why would you even tell the story, Matthew? The, uh, the, the magi of the East, the, the soothsayers, the witch doctors of, of Persia, the ones who uh, seek out meaning from the stars and speak horoscopes into people's, you know, into people's lives and read their future and, and, and make kingdoms and break kingdoms through their astrological projections why would you do that when the bible has clearly said that none of these are acceptable and that uh, that the the israelites who keep themselves pure for the lord should not visit any of these yet these are the ones who come to bear witness to the christ child what an amazing testimony 
for the whole world is looking for redemption. And for those to whom the redemption first came, under their noses, they were unaware. And yet those seeking in faraway places saw him even in the stars. The Lord did not hide what he was doing from the world. And he didn't hide what he was doing from the devil either. It's kind of interesting. You would think that Jesus would be kept a secret. For the devil, it seems, through the ages had been very powerful uh, in, in destroying uh, the, the promised people of God. He had tempted them and led them astray, even when they were walking with God in their midst, in the wilderness, in the days of Moses, he was still able to tempt them away to worship golden calves and to make their offerings to Ashtoreth and Baal. The devil was always trying to destroy what God was doing, but you know, here's the interesting thing. God doesn't need to keep secrets from the devil because even if the devil has all the information, he's not able to use it because the devil's no match for God anyway, is he? The book of Revelation tells the story of the great dragon that's waiting for the woman to give birth. Revelation chapter 12 and the astrological images that are given there are pretty interesting. And as a matter of fact, a great, uh, a great um, book was written not too long ago by Colin Nichol, who... Uh, is a doctor of uh, theology, but also uh, has studied um, astronomy and, and various, uh, various uh, ancient legends and so forth. And he put together a book called The Great Christ Comet, which is, in my opinion, the most uh, convincing of all of the uh, explanations of the, the star that we're reading about here. <clears throat> well worth picking up and reading. It's about $30 at Amazon. But uh, The Great Christ Comet is absolutely fantastically well written and a very convincing case nevertheless he points out that revelation chapter 12 is actually it's uh, it's astrological language and he's using that uh, uh, that image to uh, he uses that image to to actually find the christ comet in four or five bc maybe six bc anyway <clears throat> In the prophetic word, the dragon is waiting, waiting for the woman to give birth. Who's the woman? The woman is Israel. Israel has been waiting to give birth to Messiah, the promised one through whom salvation comes to the world. And as she gets ready to give birth, the dragon leaps to take her child, but her child is whisked away into the wilderness. And, uh, and, and she is protected until the child grows and becomes the one who crushes Hydra's head. And, um, and of course, in the story of Matthew, the devil is waiting to destroy the Christ child. The magi who see the star come and they tell the dragon, Herod, who is kind of an embodiment of this, of this metaphor. He is the hands and feet of the devil in his world at the time and he's, and he's angry. And it's violent, and he tries to kill the child, but he can't, because God's always one step ahead of him. It's almost like he's playing cat and mouse. It's like that Tom and Jerry thing, you know, where the cat never actually gets the mouse. You think he's going to get him, but he never gets him, because he's always one step ahead. It's silly. But God never needed to keep a secret from Satan, because Satan is no match for God whatsoever. 
So God told the, the Magi, <laughs> Satan's own people. He's like, hey, check out the star. See that star right there? Yeah, you've never seen that one before, have you? Yeah, watch where it's pointing. Yeah, why don't you follow that? Because those stars usually arrive when there's a great king being born in the earth. Why don't you follow that? And by the way, the constellations, the star is arising in. It's not a star, it's a comet, but as it as it spins in its helical rising and then later as it comes and, and, and precedes the sun, uh, as, as it then follows the sun in the western sky, as you watch the tail of the comet, it's gonna come and stand like a sword directly over a house. By the way, the constellations that it's in, that constellation represents Judea. So there's a king born in Judea. And if you go to Judea, you'll find that king. So he tells Satan's own and steals them away. <laughs> Where the wise men came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the Great heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Of course he was troubled. You know why? Herod didn't want there to be a Messiah. He wanted to be Messiah. He had rebuilt the temple himself. He was rich and he was powerful and he had gained his seat from the Senate in Rome. Augustus had given him this sort of fiefdom and he had made himself rich through it. And he wanted to hand it off, hand it off to his successors, but he became, he became suspicious of his own sons, so he had them killed. And he raised up one of his, his sons, his firstborn, and raised him up to be his successor, but just literally five weeks before, five days before he died, he ordered the, 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 the execution of his eldest son. And then he gave it to one of the others, who, <laughs> who eventually becomes the king when Jesus is, is walking through Nazareth and preaching the gospel. Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled to all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the child, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Again, no secrets. <laughs> Somehow they knew Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. If they really believed that Messiah was going to come in Bethlehem, you'd think they would have like protected Bethlehem, built it up into a city. They might have had shrines there or places like, mm, maybe we'll build a nice place, a palace. Maybe there'll be... A special place, but as it turns out, Bethlehem was a village for shepherds. And it didn't have a whole lot of room for visitors, apparently, because as we know from the story, Jesus was born and uh, placed in a manger because there was no room in the inn. So they knew, no secrets there. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the prophecy from the prophet Micah, Old Testament times, 700 years before Christ. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had, arrived, had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar, <laughs> liar. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen where it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Seriously, if you're interested to have a really, really convincing theory of what this looked like, call a nickel, the great Christ comet. I get royalties. I'm, yeah. <laughs> Not really. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Wow. What a story, eh? Gold, frankincense and myrrh. We've heard about those before. Gold is the, that's the treasure of kings, isn't it? Frankincense, what's that? It's a kind of perfume. Myrrh is what's used for anointing the dead. And uh, also a perfume, but it's a, a strong perfume that's, that's in this passage foreshadowing the death of Christ. But uh, the gold certainly represents his royalty, doesn't it? And, um, and for gold to be given to a child in a manger in a shepherd's village seems so strange. wonder what the gold provided for. Maybe it provided for what would, came, what would come next, the flight to Egypt. Because Joseph didn't have a lot of money. He was poor. We know this from Luke's gospel. When they went to offer sacrifice for the time of purification, they couldn't afford to buy a lamb. Those who were raising the very lamb of God couldn't afford to buy a lamb for sacrifice. And so they had to offer turtle doves to the Lord because they were poor. Maybe this gold provided for their quick escape because Joseph was warned in a dream in the next passage to get out of town because Herod was coming to kill the children. How amazing. Again, God one step ahead of the devil, always. Not keeping any secrets because he doesn't need to. Those who are looking, those who are searching, those who seek him will find. That has always been his promise. Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Knock, the door shall be opened unto you. Ask and it will be given. He repeated it twice. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For anyone who asks, to him it is given. I mean, he repeats himself. Why? Because that's the nature of God. God is not withholding from us. He doesn't have some special elite force to whom he gives his, his, uh, his precious things. And the rest of the riffraff must just watch. No, God is desirous to give to all of us. The only thing that is required to see God is to seek God. Herod did not seek this child to worship him. He sought him to destroy him. The wise men sought him because they were seeking Messiah. And so they found him. The frankincense is interesting. I wondered why frankincense. And then I was alerted. There was a, there's a passage in Psalm 72, which translated a little differently in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been the current, uh, the current scriptures that would have been in the synagogues and read uh, at the time of Jesus. If they were reading Greek at all, uh, they would have been reading the Septuagint. And certainly the New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint when they write their letters. So the Apostle Paul quotes from them, Peter, of course, and so forth. And so it's interesting because we have the Hebrew texts and the more ancient texts. We go back to the original languages as much as we can. In our modern era, we've got access to many different manuscripts, and we've tried to find the most reliable by piecing them all together and finding the most common threads. But in the time when the disciples would have been reading, those who read in Greek would have read the Septuagint. And, um, and so Psalm 72 in the Septuagint uh, happens to use a word which is not reflected in our, in our current version, but I did find this 
in a uh, in a commentary last night, and it was very interesting. Psalm seventy two is a psalm of of David. Well, it says of Solomon, but but at the end of it, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So this is the last verse. So it's attributed to Solomon, or it's a song about Solomon, uh, written by David. We're not, we're not quite sure, um, but the uh, but the psalm is um, it's a celebration of ro- of the royal. Uh, the, the royal prince regent, or the, uh, or perhaps a, a psalm to be spoken at the coronation of a new of the new king. Listen to this: Give the king your justice, O God, and righteous your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. There's a, there's a beautiful poem. Uh, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. This is where I I think we get a little bit of the legend of the kings from the Orient. You know, the kings of, we three kings of Orient are. Well, they weren't kings, they were magi in Matthew's story, which is very different from kings. They were soothsayers. They were stargazers. But they did make kings because they were, they were the wise men of, of Persia who were looked to to give answer to who should be rising in power and who should not. But they did come and they did bow before him. And of course, we know this, Solomon did have kings bowing to him, but he didn't rule the kind of territory that this psalm speaks of. But we know one who does. And kings have most assuredly bowed before him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and he who has no helper. Look at this. Isn't this interesting that the expected Messiah is going to be one who hears the voice of the poor? One who hears the voice of the poor. That is what everybody's looking for. We're looking for justice. We're looking for righteousness. We're not looking for somebody who's going to be bribed. We're not looking for someone who's going to prop up the elite, the wealthy class at the expense of the of the poor. He's going to be the one who lifts us all, the needy, from the ash heap and raises them up together with the princes. Not bringing down the princes, but bringing up everybody. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and he who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Interesting, isn't it? Precious is their blood in his sight. Even their death is precious to him. Suggests that he's not saving everybody from, from death. And this is truly what Christ has done even across the world since the days of the resurrection until now. Disciples of Jesus have been put to death and their blood has been spilled throughout the world. But it is precious to the Lord. It is precious. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. 
may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. See, that there's the first gift. May gold be given to him. May there be an abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains. May it be, may it wave, may its fruit be like, what does your translation say? Lebanon, right? Is that what it says? In all the translations, it says Lebanon. In the Septuagint, it says frankincense. Interesting. May its fruit be like frankincense. Lebanos, Lebanos, Lebanon, same, it's the same root word. It means frankincense. Lebanon is the land of frankincense. This frankincense, I believe, comes from cedars, perhaps. I don't know, but it's a, uh, maybe somebody can search that out for me. But we know Lebanon for its cedars, the cedars of Lebanon, we certainly do. But the very name itself is this name of frankincense. And it is, it's a, a fragrance, a spice of, of, um, of wealth. It's a spice of security it's a spice it's it's a spice that's that's in this passage represented it represents the gifts of kings and so uh, may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field may his name endure forever his fame continue as long as the sun may people be blessed in him all nations call him blessed this is surely not speaking of Solomon. This is surely speaking of Jesus, is it not? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. <laughs> what if Psalm 72 was what was being fulfilled by these kings unwittingly they didn't even know they brought gold they brought frankincense and in so doing fulfilled a prophecy which was obscured even by the language itself but god does it we can read in luke's gospel the story of the shepherds and the night that jesus came and we can read of the story of simeon and anna who were expecting Messiah to come. And when he was taken to the temple to be dedicated, they were there and they recognized the infant because the Holy Spirit was upon them. And we can see that those who were awaiting the Lord saw him, but those who were not awaiting the Lord saw nothing at all. And we'll see the same story told. The story is a story of obscurity, and yet in the midst of that obscurity, a light shining so bright that you cannot ignore it. We had fun last night with my new Christmas gift didn't we? You knew it would come up in the sermon. You knew it. I didn't bring it with me today because I didn't want to blind you, but I got a fantastic flashlight for Christmas. I'm so happy about my flashlight. It's really, really awesome. 2,800 lumens. It is absolutely fantastic. It's brighter than the lights on my automobile. It is fantastic. Turn on the high beams and my light shines brighter. <laughs> it is funny that there are some people who cannot see the light shining in the darkness, but it shines brighter than the sun. Today you have seen the light, my friends. You are here to celebrate the birth of Christ because you have seen the light. What a glorious thing. Every story about Jesus that has made him famous, every story told to us by Matthew, by Luke, by the other authors of the New Testament, 
The story of Jesus told to us by these magi, the story told by Simeon, by Anna, by the shepherds themselves, the story of Jesus told from the beginnings of this gospel story even until this day, they are all the stories of people whose lives have been transformed because they saw the light. I tell you today, I tell you today, open your eyes and see receive the light let the blindness of your former way of life be flooded away by a, an inexpressible and un, undeniable light i say that the reason jesus is famous is because Everyone who has seen him has been changed. He is not, he is not just some interesting person in history. I heard a sermon uh, about how Christ changed everything and how every, every king that has lived is all everything they ever did it's all it's all subjected to Christ because you know the time of their birth and the time of their death and the things that they did and they all are gauged by the date the times that are given to them so in 1776 something happened in Boston in, or in in uh, in here in the United States and and in in uh, I don't know in 1945 something happened in 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 Japan and uh, and and something happened in the world and these dates they're all subjected to Christ because all of history has been aligned with the time that he was born. So everybody, every king on earth has had to bow to Christ. We know about, this person said, we know about Augustus Caesar, we know about Julius Caesar, but they're all defined by BC or AD. And you can call it BCE if you want to, but it still is, no matter what you call it, it's still the same time. You can call it anything you like. It's still based on the time of Christ's birth. When he came, everything changed. But that's not the reason why he is known and why he is loved. He is known and he is loved because he has changed our lives. Because when we saw the light, the darkness fled away. And something inside of us that was broken is whole. Everything inside of us that was broken is made whole. That's what Christ came to do. Last night, I saw in a dream, a vision of the night, I saw a strange thing. And, uh, and I'll conclude with this today on this Christmas day. I saw a, a, a vision. And um, in my vision, I was observing. It was like I was outside watching a watching a documentary or something, uh, on a, but I was in it. I was in it, but I couldn't be seen inside of it. And I was in a, what appeared to be uh, some Asian city, uh, an older city. It seemed to, like it was Chinese New Year's kind of 
uh, colors all around me, and and uh, there were it was a it was a city built on water, and um, I was in a boat in between rows of buildings and just the water. It was almost like Venice, but in Hong Kong, maybe a hundred years ago. I don't know. And uh, we went under a small bridge, and somebody was shouting at pigeons that were roosting on this bridge. And we went under another bridge, and somebody shouted at this bird that was there and shooing away the pigeons. And I, I saw that it wasn't a pigeon, it was a dove. And, and I heard a voice say, somebody saying, that's not a pigeon, that's a dove. And, um, and then I saw a, I saw a woman, she was a nun, uh, small. And, uh, and she said, that's not a dove. And she climbed across a bridge and I could see that she had once been nimble. Uh, now she was older and it was difficult, but she had through self-control, a life of self-control, she had maintained the ability to squeeze through some, some, some sort of a, a pathway that had been that had been blocked and, uh, and, and pillars that had been set up to try and prevent it from happening, but she was able to squeeze through and find her way through to where she went to retrieve this dove by bringing, uh, it was almost, it was a, some sort of a, a sweet liquid, almost like you would give for, for hummingbirds. It was, it was her tears that were mixed and she presented them. And when she did, the dove returned and and as I was watching, she, uh, she looked off into the distance and, and she was looking through a, a telescope and uh, she looked across to a corner of the city and all of a sudden I could see through the telescope what she was looking at. And she was looking at women who were dressed up with peacock feathers and it was clear that they were trafficked. And... Um, and they had a marking on their face. And I saw it and I turned to look at this nun. And I saw she had the same marking on her face. And she suddenly gripped my hand and I felt it. And I woke up as she looked at me in the face and she said, Eric, that was me. And she let go. I woke up with a start this morning. And... Um, and it became perfectly clear to me, this vision, this dream, what it meant. I saw the power of the gospel that went into places all over the world. Maybe even a hundred years ago in Singapore or Hong Kong or places where before there was communist China. And people were trying to shoo away the pigeons which represent the religions of the world. Pigeon religion. The dove represents the Holy Spirit. And when I saw the Holy Spirit alight and I saw this, I saw this, uh, this crowd or this man who was chasing them, shouting and trying to get rid of them, and the dove flew away, I thought, oh, the Holy Spirit. And she said, this is not a dove. And I knew it wasn't a dove. I knew it was the Holy Spirit that was being represented. And then I saw her through a lifetime of maintaining her, her spiritual disciplines. She brought the tears of her prayers before the Lord and the Holy Spirit returned to that place. But he was there not just to be there, he was there to rescue people.
people who were in abject fear and people who were abused. And then I saw that she had been one of those, but was now transformed. And this vision startled me. And I woke up with this awareness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only good news that can take the rejected people of the world and give them dignity again. There are countless true stories of things like this that have happened. People who were once lost but are now found, who were blind but now see. There are countless true stories of this, and perhaps it may have been more, uh, more beneficial for me to read you a story of the transformed lives, but the imagery of this was so startling this morning and woke me right up, and when she took my hand and, and spoke my name, my heart came awake. She looked me square in the eye and said, Eric, I was that. That was me. And I looked at her and cried and said, I know. For such were each of us. What does the gospel say? We were murderers, some. We were, we were lost in our sexual sins, some. We were thieves, some. We were homosexuals, some. We were drug addicts, some. We were liars, unfaithful, cheaters, the kind the world would reject, some. We followed our own passions. We were disobedient to parents. We were rebellious against the state. Some. And such were we. But Christ came into our lives on that, on that Christmas day. And we have been changed forever. My friends, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why Jesus is so important today. This is why we give him everything. Because we are not those who can be proud of themselves for our achievements. We are not those who can build monuments for themselves. We are not those who are rich in the things of this world. No. On the contrary. Let us live our lives by discipline. Let us keep ourselves from the things of the world. Let us like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say no to the Finey, the, fi the, fine, the, the, the finery, <laughs> find the right word, to the delicacies of the, of the world. Let us say no. Let us keep ourselves fit and trim. Let us, through our tears and our prayers for the nations around us, let us bring the presence of the Holy Spirit into our communities. Let, us, let them chase away the pigeons of religion, but let the Holy Spirit remain. Let us seek this this Christmas. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your preciousness, for your blessedness. It is time for us to go to our homes and rejoice.
We ask that your grace would go with us and we pray today that the light would shine and the darkness would not comprehend it. In Jesus' name, amen.